2: Humana has joined together with TPG and Welsh Carson in a $4.1 billion bid for Kindred. It is a uh, healthcare and hospice and ha- various uh, medical service provider. Here to explain more and better than I could is Max Neeson, who covers the biotech, pharma, and healthcare industries uh, for us here at Bloomberg Gadfly and always has fantastic insights uh, into these worlds. So uh, give us your take on this transaction
3: sure so it's um a kind of pretty interesting and complex transaction they're going to take this business which is you know the combination of those home care and hospice assets and then specialty hospitals and kind of splitting them in half so those those private equity companies will run a new special ho- specialty hospital company and Humana um is going to enter into a joint venture with them on the home care stuff and uh, the reason that Humana got involved is um they're really big into Medicare Medicare advantage and um, you know, they want these kind of home care uh, assets in order to basically care for more people at home, prevent them from getting to the hospital, and, and generally find ways to, to bring costs down. Uh, because once you get into the hospital, as anyone who's ever made it there knows, it gets really, really expensive quickly.
1: Can you comment on this idea that Medicare, which uh, obviously available to people over the age of 65, and in some cases uh, younger than 65, but... Uh, if Medicare is going to cover certain kinds of hospitalization, but not certain types of home care, is that gonna have to change in order to make this merger make any sense, this combination?
3: Yeah, so so reimbursement with, with Medicare is always pretty tricky, but I, I imagine Human had that in mind, you know, certain things that um at the end of the day, even if they have to cover more of the cost themselves, the cost of paying for some of the home care relative to to being built at the hospital is probably so vast that they'll they'll take that any day.
2: I want to ask you about this concept that Humana, as an insurance provider, is getting into the healthcare business directly. I mean, we kind of saw that um, with the CVS uh, merger, but this is a whole new ball game, right? I mean, what's the what's the logic here?
3: Um, so this is the logic that that particularly United Health has been following for a long time. Uh, basically, when you have kind of this integrated model where you're both the insurer and the provider, um, you can direct people to to your kind of in-house providers, which um, you know it's it's a lower cost option. They're not taking you know an extra bit of profit. It's all the same company, and um, they're gonna basically do the the procedures that you want in the order you want them for the people you want also provide you a lot of data about your enrollees and, um, you know, the marketplace in general. So you can provide care at a lower cost and price, your insurance products better.
2: Are there any big insurance companies that haven't made a move like this that you expect to at some point in the near future?
3: I mean, I, I, I've been expecting the, this from Humana or from another company for, for some time, uh, basically because you just look at how successful United Health has been. Um, I think I have a chart in my latest column. Their Optum unit alone uh, books more revenue than... Um, or just about as much as one, but more than most of the other large insurance companies in the United States. And also they've ridden the kind of cost savings and, and analytic benefits of that to becoming the largest health insurer uh, in the United States. It's worked incredibly well for them. I'm I'm a little surprised it's taken other insurers so long to emulate them. And now you finally have you know the big Aetna-CVS deal, which, which is an interesting step. And, and then Humano, which is taking kind of a narrower targeted approach aimed at a particular market, Medicare in this case.
1: Is this good or
3: bad for hospitals? Uh, this is bad for hospitals. Um, you know, they're another they're kind bad of, thing for hospitals. Yeah. They're so, what did, he, what under did the you gun. think he was going to say? <laughs> I mean, do you think you know, this is terrific for him? <laughs> uh, so, you know, any time when an uh, insurer, you know, has um more leverage is doing more of the hospitals job themselves. That that's not good. I mean part of the reason that you had such aggressive hospital consolidation, you know, two reasons. One to kind of fight back about in, against insurers that are ever larger and more powerful and have, you know, can push back on, on reimbursement. And also to kind of prevent patient leakage. So patients from leaving your healthcare system to go somewhere else. Um, you know, if if you own everything in an the area, they they can't go anywhere else. That's why you have this consolidation. But now, if insurers own, you know, their own providers and are actively pushing people there, that that's pretty bad for hospitals. And uh, just quickly, what about for people that are not necessarily in these insurance plans? Um, you know, that gets a little trickier for them. You you don't get the same kind of. Discount or, or synergy when you're when you're trying to you know use a human owned product and you're on another company's insurance uh, probably going to be a little more expensive. All right, thanks very much, uh, Max Neeson, our Bloomberg gadfly when it comes to all things related to
1: healthcare. I encourage you to uh, read his columns uh, on uh, Bloomberg.com. Max Neeson, thanks very much uh, for being here. It's really a a
2: fascinating uh, combination. And Humana is known as the number two seller of private health coverage plans for the elderly. So this is the Medicare Advantage uh, program. So it sort of explains their focus here. Tim, I have been struck by the degree of consensus when it comes to U.S. stocks next year, and frankly, stocks globally uh, in 2018. Everyone seems to think it will be a great year, another banner year for equities. Here to tell us what he thinks is Alberto Gallo, Portfolio Manager and Head of Macro Strategies at Algebra Investments, uh, and he joins us now. Alberto, thank you so much for being with
4: us. Good morning.
2: So are you as bullish as everybody else in the world is?
4: I think there is a lot of consensus, both for equities to go higher in the U.S. and also non-U.S. equities, as well as for interest rates to gradually move up in an orderly path. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Uh, We are coming from nine years of QE with central banks holding the hands of markets. And I'm not sure the transition to a world with less QE is going to be so orderly. So we could have, basically, we could have three risks. One is a sharper return of inflation rock in the market. A second one is central bankers are getting a bit more hawkish and worried about financial stability across the world. And then the third one is geopolitics with uh, North Korea, with uh, Iran and uh, Saudi Arabia and a lot of other hotspots in the world. And you know, we feel the market is underpricing all the risks and still living in a Goldilocks world. And that's a little bit, uh, it, it's, a re- it's a red flag for us. The the,
1: the title of one of your most recent uh, reports, uh, the Silver Bullet, is Irrational Complacency. Then how do you invest for irrational complacency?
4: It is a a conundrum for a portfolio manager to construct a portfolio in an environment where there is a lot of assets which are overvalued. You have to try to distinguish assets that are overvalued versus bubbles. And I think the behavior of investors is very important. Where you see assets... Where you have uh, flipping, where you have financial engineering, where you have investors that have never invested in their lives going in, uh, then you're looking at a bubble. Uh, other assets are simply uh, a little bit overvalued, but may have more room to run. So we are—we um, don't know when the crisis, uh, when the next correction will uh, will um, strike, but we're trying to construct our portfolios with. Uh, less exposure to um, a downside and uh, buying upside exposure through options by limiting potential downside by investing a limited premium in uh, uh, upside optionality, but having a limited loss if things go south. Because we have we've come from an environment of very very low volatility.
2: Yeah.
4: Let's let's remember QE not only moved asset prices higher, but also pushed investors to sell volatility.
2: Alberto, uh, you said that you are concerned about financial stability and that the risk of some kind of threat to it next year uh, could be more significant than the markets are currently pricing in. What asset class is particularly vulnerable in uh, some sort of disruption to financial stability right now?
4: I would say there is a pyramid of uh, asset classes that have been distorted by QE. At the bottom, you have uh, rates markets, bonds. So you've got 11 trillion of bonds globally that have negative interest rates. As central bankers normalize interest rates, these are are vulnerable. Then there is a middle section of the pyramid, which is the assets that people bought because they couldn't find yield in government bonds. So these are high-yield bonds or investment-grade debt. Uh, There's $8 of them, and they are not at negative interest rates, but they are very, very low credit spreads. Then the tip of the pyramid is strategies that are designed to sell volatility. Basically, they bet um, that tomorrow the market will be as quiet, as good as today. And this is uh, something that we estimate to be around $2.1 trillion. Now, to put this into context, subprime was $2.4 trillion when um, the credit crisis struck in 2008. So $2.1 trillion in short volatility strategies is a substantial amount, um, and it could cause a risk to financial stability. So, if investors tomorrow um, realize that uh, the future is not going to be as calm as it has been for the last nine years, then these strategies may be unwound more quickly than the market is expecting today. Just- so, we are we are worried about this this pyramid of trades at the bottom of which there is QE.
2: Okay, so these this two point one trillion dollars of short volatility of uh, funds? Are these hedge funds? Are these mutual funds? What are the forms that you see them in and, and who are the biggest asset managers involved?
4: Well, there's a variety of strategies, some directly sell volatility, so uh, shorting futures. And we are talking about a small amount in the range of 100 billion, but there's also strategies that are uh, more institutional and larger and um, routinely sell volatility for yield or strategies that rely on volatility to stay low uh, to uh, perform. So th- there's a variety of, um, of strategies. We, we, we uh, don't have an exact estimate, but it is an amount large enough to uh, create a problem for financial stability. Generally, I wouldn't go into specifics on, on the asset managers, but I would say that regulators in 2008 and following the crisis have been focusing on banks, have been regulating banks, increasing capital requirements. But in the meantime, asset managers have been taking more and more risk to justify their fees, uh, as yields have gone lower. And we think that today the asset management industry has, uh, and also both passive and active, has more risks than um, uh, than the banks. Bank risks have moved from banks to to uh, to the buy side to the asset management industry. And another phenomenon that comes with this is there's been a an increase in passive investing and herding. So everyone going for the same trades.
1: Alberto, I'm going to put you on the spot here because uh, in November I read a, an article in the Financial Times about your boss, uh, David uh, Serra, the, the head of uh, algebras And uh, he's quoted as saying, I have an Italian heart but a British brain. Uh, what, what does that mean, at least to you?
4: Well, I think the... the um, Uh, I think what we try to do is to have a uh, very organized um, risk management uh, culture here while, you know, investing in very risky sectors. Um, Our DNA comes from investing in risky bonds like high-yield debt. Uh, You have to have very strong, I think the the Italian um, part comes in having strong views on on the market, but you have to also combine them with... uh, Uh, you know, with numbers and risk management. And it's a bit of a a stereotype, but that's what we're trying to do here. Uh, We're going in a very risky market. We have to have strong views to outperform on um, countries and names that, have done well with you know we've done very well this year like greece or portugal or ecuador or argentina but uh, going into next year we have to couple that with uh, some risk management
1: thanks very much for being with us Uh, alberto gallo is portfolio manager head of macro strategies at algebras investments joining us from london
2: I am so excited for this next segment. Uh, joining us is Ethereum co-founder Joseph Lubin. He is uh, one of the founders of the uh, global uh, blockchain of Ethereum, but also he is a uh, the founder of global blockchain specialist Consensus, and he joins us here in our eleven three O studios. Uh, Joseph, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I want to start with energy consumption because there have been a number of articles talking about how Bitcoin consumes so much energy that it's equal to the uh, entire output of Denmark currently and that it will just surge uh, continually. I know Ethereum consumes less energy, but what do you say to people who say Bitcoin is killing our earth?
5: So I'm not sure that statistic is true. Um, There are lots of people who, uh, uh, who are a little hyperbolic about that issue. Um, but, uh, uh, Bitcoin and our network Ethereum do indeed, uh, burn a lot of electricity. They do that in order to establish trust, uh, in these infrastructures. Um, the traditional financial industry also burns a lot of e- electricity and occupies a lot of real estate. And, uh, um, it, uh, I would argue, as many orders of magnitude less efficient than um, these systems. Ethereum itself is actually uh, aware of this issue, has been aware right from the start. Uh, We intended to move from the inefficient proof-of-work system, which burns a lot of electricity.
2: Hold on a sec. Let's back up. Proof-of-work, you mean basically this idea that any change in the blockchain is uploaded at the same time to every system, uh, every network that is kind of in the... uh, in yeah. the sphere,
5: so trust is achieved by having massive redundancy a lot, a lot, among a lot of nodes on this peer-to-peer network. Um, in order to keep them in sync, you need some sort of consensus formation mechanism. And in these consensus mechanisms, you have to elect a leader, and you have to have people follow on behind the leader. So a proof-of-work system, which burns a lot of electricity, is what enables the election of that leader or the the winning of the leading position. That's true in Bitcoin. That's true in Ethereum currently. Ethereum is moving away from uh, expensive hardware, burning of electricity, a lot of wasteful computation uh, to a system called proof of stake, which replaces all of that waste uh, with uh, a system that uh, is facilitated by an economic bond, uh, basically money that you place in a smart contract on the blockchain in order to enable um, you to probabilistically be selected to be a leader for a next round.
1: Joseph Lubin, I, I'm going to just uh, sort of take a, a off ramp for just a second sure. because I, I need, to, and just to mention, as the founder of uh, Consensus, uh, you're working in a variety of different kind of areas of related to blockchain. What, how would you describe, or is there a good analogy that you can offer so we can understand what is a distributed application? platform and why is that relevant to understanding all of this conversation about Bitcoin or blockchain technology?
5: So Ethereum is a platform that enables decentralized applications. Um, uh, We like to think of it as one element of the coming decentralized World Wide Web or the Web 3.0. It'll be the infrastructure for trusted transactions, for automated agreements. There are other elements of decentralizing technology like decentralized storage, decentralized bandwidth, decentralized high throughput compute. and. Uh, these sort of elements will enable us to move away from a business versus consumer kind of infrastructure for delivering services uh, to infrastructures on protocol-driven open platforms that have lots of different actors in different roles in end-sided markets and basically uh, emerging ecosystems that offer sets of services to consumers. So So in none of those will there be um, an actor that's overly controlling or overly monetizing.
1: So for example, let's say you wanted to make a purchase of a product overseas the bank or banking institutions, whether they be with the buyer and the seller, they currently are in between the two sure. uh, intermediaries, the two yes. intermediaries, right? So you what you're saying is that this new platform is a step in the direction of getting rid of those uh, banks in between so that now you can, in a trusted way, uh, transact business, financial business directly, between the buyer and seller with no intermediary.
5: Absolutely. So, uh, we've stood up a bunch of different platforms. They're in different states of maturity. Some of them are launched on the Ethereum blockchain already. Um, they enable certain intermediaries to be squeezed out of the situation, or certain uh, amounts of value that intermediaries pull from the infrastructure to be right sized, because uh, there's less friction, less less rent seeking possible. So, we built platforms for prediction markets or wisdom markets. We built uh, an adjacent recent music industry platform. We built a supply chain platform. We have built a fixed income reference data platform. So we're we're kind of all over the map. We've got about 25 different projects along those lines.
3: You're
1: going to have to uh, spend more time with us because uh, I'm just slightly beginning to understand and that's dangerous as i'm sure you know uh thank you very much for being here Uh, joseph lubin is the founder of consensus and he can be followed on twitter at ethereum joseph or at ethereum project or at consensus thank you well done
2: A burger that doesn't have any meat in it, that doesn't require killing an animal, that tastes as good as one that does. Impossible, or perhaps the Impossible Burger. Would What Would you think of that, Pim? He's rolling his eyes.
1: Uh, no, I'm smiling. <laughs> I like the way you did that. Impossible Foods.
2: In joining us uh, to talk about the Impossible Foods... The Impossible Burger is David Lee, Chief Operating Officer and Chief Financial Officer of Impossible Foods. So, uh, David, what is the Impossible Burger?
6: Well, the Impossible Burger is the only plant-based burger that half the time hardcore meat eaters prefer blind versus a burger from a cow. It's it's this miracle burger that uses 95% less land and only a quarter of the water and releases a fraction of the greenhouse gases.
2: What's it made out of?
6: So this burger is entirely made out of plants. And what's interesting about it is its four major ingredients were designed to be affordable and accessible at scale, and and they're natural. So there's nothing synthetic or strange about this burger. It's It just makes for a craveable burger for a meat eater entirely made out of plants.
1: Okay, let, let's just talk a little bit about the science if we can. Uh, this was uh, founded in 2011 by Patrick Brown, right, at uh, Stanford? Right, that's right. Okay, and uh, what is the process by which you create uh, the impossible burger? Uh, burger. You, you, I want to get to this idea of using heme as a term and it is an iron compound, an iron-based compound that hemoglobin is the way I understand. Right. So so to Pat Brown,
6: it. to your point, six years ago, working very hard over a period of four years with a number of great scientists, discovered among other things, what makes meat taste and feel and smell like meat. And it turns out this magic molecule, heme, H-E-M-E, is the only thing that can make meat seem meaty to a meat eater. Um, and then not only did he discover this, he discovered that you know heme is a building block of life. It's in myoglobin in animals. It's in hemoglobin in us, but it's also in plants. Um, lastly, he figured out a way using a, a great industrial process, fermentation, to make this magic molecule originally found in a plant scalable and affordable and at high quality and and that's how uh, that's how this burger is delicious for meat eaters
2: so impossible foods is still currently uh, just selling its uh meat I put in quotes uh to restaurants. is that correct? It's not sort of in the grocery stores right?
6: yeah for now we are serving that half of the u s. ground beef market which is sold through food service and restaurants
2: so uh, I just want to talk about the vision here because I know that Bill Gates, is an investor in the company, of course, Bill Gates, known from founding Microsoft. Um, What's the sort of ambition, what's the sort of uh, longer term plan here for Impossible Foods?
6: Well, our investors are aligned to the very large ambition we have. We want our impact to be seen from outer space. We want every meat eater on the planet to happily choose an impossible version of meat made entirely out of plants. Because if we can do that, then we can use a fraction of the world's resources while providing that delicious, craveable taste that we all know meat eaters are not going to forego. That's the ambition of the company.
1: And I would imagine the ambition is also to make some money because you've raised more than a quarter billion so far in venture capital, I believe, like $257 Is that- Well, our investor
6: base goes beyond venture capital. It certainly does include great VCs like COSLA, but it now includes sovereign wealth funds. uh, 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 Temasek in Singapore, right? That's right. And on our investor base, to your point, they're terribly interested in the size of business we're building. And we believe this financial engine that we're creating, to your point, is what's required to fund the mission. So absolutely we're interested in business in return.
3: What's
2: the cost of impossible meat, in quotes, uh, relative to a similar grade of beef?
6: So we like to point out that since our burger uses you know, 95% less land and only a quarter of the water, that small amount of resources translates into a, a burger that can be extremely cost competitive. Um, so while we aren't releasing actual figures, The reality is we wouldn't be successful as a business or for our mission if we can't serve the globe extremely cost-efficiently, as or below the cost of commodity ground beef at scale.
1: David, uh, you've got a production facility that's being constructed, I believe, in Oakland right now? It's actually, for the last two months, up
6: and running. Okay. If we went there, what would we see? What would we smell? First, you are welcome to come here's what you wouldn't see or smell you wouldn't see a slaughterhouse you wouldn't see the expense associated with shipping animals what you would see is an extremely clean efficient simple finished goods manufacturing facility one by the way that reused an existing bakery of all things because our mission is to make sure that we do things as sustainably and cost-efficiently as possible.
1: Right, but what what would we see? I mean, what is it a production line? Is it a uh, huge it uh, you know extruding machines? What kind
6: of Yeah, uh... it's nearly 70,000 square feet. It you'll see produce off the line up to 1.4 million pounds a month when we're at capacity. Today, you know, we're ramping up, it's only been open for 2 months, but you would see real product being shipped off the line to to more and more customers.
2: So is the idea or is the possibility here simply ground beef or could there be some kind of replica of different cuts and sort of the uh, more intact slices of beef? Our,
6: our, you know, our mission and ambition goes way beyond Impossible Burger. You know, we have the technology to do plant-based chicken, plant-based fish, pork, even uh, a dairy platform. Um, I've seen prototypes of whole cuts of steak, of prototypes of eggs. Um, we've already seen the product served quite well in Asia in the form of dumplings or a bough. Um, this is a technology that spans multiple geographies and products.
2: What's the biggest headwind for you right now?
6: You know, I like to say that technology has now been eliminated as a headwind, and it's all about good old-fashioned execution. You know, With the amount of growth and the amount of demand that's ahead of us, we have to continuously grow at high quality, and, and that's what we're focused on.
1: What has been the uh, reaction by the Food and Drug Administration? Because I understand that you want them to confirm that it's safe to eat, but they've expressed concerns mainly because this stuff has not really been consumed by human beings in any quantity and might even be an allergy or an allergen for some people?
6: Well actually, we've been generally recognized as safe since 2014. And we have been working with the FDA for the last several years and in really a gold standard of safety that very, very few food companies seek. Um, In what's breaking news, in in the last couple of weeks, it's actually public. We believe in radical transparency. So any consumer can go read the over 1,000-page filing we recently provided the FDA, having complied with every possible test we could think of to convince the world just how safe this product is. I like to think this product may be the most well-tested food product you'll ever come across.
1: Soy leg hemoglobin. That's right. Is that the technical term? That's right. I
6: mean, what it really means is heme, the same heme that you see in a burger from a cow, but sourced from a legume, a plant. Well, we look forward to uh, giving it a try. Thanks very much. Uh,
1: David Lee is the uh, chief operating officer and the chief financial officer of Impossible Foods, all about their plant-based burgers.